Uh, we're going to begin a new series, a, a new teaching series today uh, called Overflow, and uh, this series is going to take us uh, for for a couple of months. We're gonna we're gonna be uh, around this the this series, the journey of Jesus. But before I get there, I want to talk about books. Um, do you guys have a do Do any of you have a special relationship with books? You, you know, like like what are what are your what are some of your favorite books? Go ahead and tell me. You got to you got to say them loud so I can hear. Lord of the Rings, okay, yes. Love it, Tolkien, I'm a big fan. What else? Favorite books? Max Licato books. <laughs> Nehemiah, you kiss-ups. <laughs> mm. You never read Nehemiah until I taught on it this last series. That's in the, yeah, you're in church, so somebody's like, the Bible, the Bible. Um, Man, uh, I, I love uh, I love books. I, I didn't always love books. Uh, for for some of you like who teenagers, some of you like some of you don't know, a book is like an iPad made of wood. Um, so and you don't ever have to change the batteries. Uh, but there, uh, I didn't always like reading. Uh, I I, didn't, I really didn't like reading uh, until I went to grad school, and so I was forced to read like tons of theology and ecclesiology and eschatology and hermeneutics. Graham knows a little bit about that, and. Uh, uh, and so I was reading all these, all these like theology books, and I and I couldn't sleep at night because my brain was just being overwhelmed with all of this stuff. And my wife said, "Well, well, why don't you read something else? Why don't you read something light? Why don't you read something, something, something vivid?" And and so she, for the first time in my life, she handed me the, uh, she suggested the Lord of the Rings, and so I picked it up. And all of a sudden, uh, I was able to sleep better. All of a sudden, I was woken to this whole new world. And that's, where, that's really where my love affair with, with writing and, and with, with books begins. And so now, I don't, I don't care if it's biography or history or anything that's well-written, anything that, 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 uh, that is kind of draws me into this vivid place, I, I absolutely love. And I, and I know some of you don't have that love affair with books. And what I would say is you don't have that love affair with books yet. Because if somebody puts the right book in your hand at the right time, all of a sudden you'll get sucked in too. Because, because the, the thing about the books that we love about our, our, our favorite writers, about our, our favorite stories is, is they become something, it becomes more than just words on the page. Am I, am I right? Like, like it draws us into a, a, into a whole new world, a, a whole new place. They, they bring value suddenly to our lives. They inspire uh, I started uh, recently, so we've been reading books to our kids at night. You know, we've been reading to our kids at night before we go to bed, and um, we we were reading all these books that were just junk. I was like, ah, this these books are horrible, and and I was really convicted of like, hey, this this time with my kids bef- right before bedtime, like like I was super convicted that this is sacred space. And if this is sacred space, I just want I don't want to read just something random. I let's if I've got time and and my kids' attention for these few moments, let's pour into them things that are life-giving and, and like I said, vivid and encouraging and life-changing. And so uh, recently I read my daughter, we, uh, uh, we read a, a Lewis's book um, about a, a wardrobe. You guys remember this? A lion, a witch, and a wardrobe. And, and it was so fun because she's, having, she's asking questions about faith and baptism and all this. And so to invite her into Lewis's world and, and to see this whole thing, it, it was incredibly exciting. Because these words and these stories, whether it's Shakespeare or Lewis or Tolkien or, or Harper Lee or, or whoever, like, like these words, these stories are life-giving. 
And in this next series, I, I want us to enter into that same kind of idea because our series is it's entitled Overflow a Journey with Jesus, but it's really from the gospel writer of Luke. And Luke's gospel, if you were going to meet one New Testament writer, you would want to meet Luke. His gospel has been called the loveliest book ever written. He has an eye for vivid things, tremendous vision, incredibly detailed. He does more than just tell a story of Jesus' life. But, but like all great writers, he invites us on a journey with Jesus. And there's four distinct journeys that happen in Luke, and we're going to kind of break our, our series into this, this kind of travel narrative where we pack our bags, we travel with Jesus into the wilderness, we travel with Jesus around Galilee, and, and then we travel with Jesus to Jerusalem and then to the cross. If you could, uh, uh, like I said, if you could meet any writer, I think, it, I think it would be Luke. I think we even have maybe some pictures of what artists might think uh, uh, Luke might look like. Uh, Luke is a, a, a Gentile. Uh, he's a doctor. He's a, he's a close companion of Paul uh, as a medical man by profession. Uh, maybe you've heard like uh, ministers see men and women uh, at their best. Lawyers see men and women at their worst. But doctors see men and women as they are. And Luke has this way of looking at individuals, looking at people that's, that's incredibly personal and authentic Luke sees men and women, and he loves them. Luke is also a, a careful historian. At the very beginning of Luke, in, a, in, chapter, uh, in chapter 1, he begins by, by saying in, uh, in chapter 1, verse 3, saying, I, I'm giving you, a, uh, having, having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I've decided to write a careful account for you, most honorable Theophilus. And, and Theophilus is, a, is uh, maybe a person, but, but we also, it's a person who studies God or cares about God. So you can have, uh, so you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. He's carefully investigating and then recounting the story of Jesus. Uh, he's so careful in chapter 3, where we're going to start today, he uses six different datings to kind of mark this as a very specific moment in time when John the Baptist begins to teach and to share. But he's more than a historian. He, he, he's more than a doctor. What makes you, Luke unique is he's uh, a Gentile. That means he is uh, not Jewish, distinctly not Jewish. Uh, Luke, uh, uh, more than any other gospel writer, is, is he seldom is he going to quote the Old Testament. He never refers to Jesus as rabbi, the Jewish term for teacher. Instead, he uses the more common Greek equivalent of master. And because Luke is a Gentile, it's maybe the easiest of all gospels to read because he, he's not writing to Jews, but if he's writing to anyone, he's writing to people very much like ourselves. Writing as a Gentile, you will see he writes as one of us. And the Gospel of Luke is also uh, the most Catholic gospel. And I know I say that word, and some of you, Catholic, he said Catholic. Catholic just means universal. Luke is by far the most universal gospel. And, 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 and by that, I mean it's inclusive of everyone. There was a, uh, uh, we have this, uh, Josephus recorded this ancient Jewish prayer 
All right, so uh, in the morning, uh, men would get up and they would say this prayer. And this was a, a, a prayer a man would say early in the morning. A man would wake up and he would thank God that he was not made a Gentile. Thank you, God, that I'm not a Gentile. Thank you, God, that I'm not a slave. Thank you, God, that I'm not a woman. And that's just how the world went. But coincidentally, Gentiles, slaves, and women, that's exactly who Luke writes to. That's the exactly, that is exactly the picture of who Jesus spends the majority of his time in ministry with in Luke it's Luke's target audience. In Luke, all the barriers are down, slave and Gentile, women. In Luke, Jesus gathers the little children to him. Luke is the only gospel that shares a story about a certain good Samaritan. If you guys know that story, the, the good Samaritan, in, in, in the Jewish mind, there's no such thing as a good Samaritan. It would have been, the, it would have been equivalent to saying a good terrorist. That's what he would have said. So, I mean, Samaritans were hated by the, by the Jewish populace. They, they, were, they were completely despised. Their village kind of sat between Jerusalem and Galilee, and they walked around, the long way around, because you don't want to associate with them. And yet Luke tells a story about a good Samaritan, right? Do you see the inclusive nature, the Catholic universal nature of Luke. Jesus Christ is for all people in Luke. And Luke, above all gospels, sees no limits to the love of God. I love the story of uh, the widow's son who's passed away, and we'll get to it deep in Luke in chapter 7. A widow's only son, her, her one and only her prized one, her precious one, has passed away. And when Jesus arrives, the widow is weeping. You remember this? And in verse 7, look what it says. When the Lord saw her, his heart, what's that word? Overflow is the first part of our Luke teaching series. His heart overflowed with compassion. In Luke, Jesus' heart runs to everyone for whom life is an unequal struggle. It is a gospel for the underdog. If you have someone, uh, maybe a friend or a family member that has no faith, Luke is the place to start. Luke is the gospel that we would share first because he has such a grasp of the infinite sweep of God's love. He must have been an incredible individual. It is said that his recounting, his story of the life of Christ is the best life of Christ ever written. All right, so is that a pretty good introduction? Are you ready to dive into it again? We're going to start in chapter 3. I know, I know you're like, well, you can't start in chapter 3. Uh-huh. My teaching. My teaching. Don't worry, we're going to come back around to the rest. But if you want to, if you brought your Bibles, you can open it to chapter 3. In chapter 3, uh, we begin a new journey with Jesus, and it begins with a prophecy. In verse 4 of uh, chapter 3, uh, one of the few times that Luke quotes the Old Testament, but he quotes Isaiah. There was this ancient prophecy that said, uh, there will be a voice shouting in the wilderness saying, what are those three words? Prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. The valley will be filled and the mountains and hills made level. 
The curves will be straightened and the rough places made smooth. Now, what's interesting about this quote from Isaiah is all the Gospels include this quote from Isaiah, but they all stop right there. Matthew stops with, and the rough places will be made smooth. Only Luke, remember, Luke is the Catholic gospel, the universal gospel, the gospel for the underdog. Only Luke includes verse 6 of Isaiah's quote. Look at what it says. And then, what are those next two words? Wow. Then all people will see the salvation sent from God. Prepare the way. Prepare the way. That language, uh, it comes, it's a it's cultural language for when a, when a king would uh, propose a tour. Uh, he, maybe he's going to tour through his dominion, through his domain. Uh, before a king would enter the city or enter a territory, he would send a forerunner. Someone to go before him. And, and uh, I, I think about like the town crier. I don't know, he's coming through a be, you know, with a bell. Prepare the way, the Lord is coming. Right? And the people would, would come out and maybe they would actually physically like prepare the road. Or maybe they would, as you know, if you, if you know a little bit more of the story, they would put palm branches down or even their coats down on the road to prepare the path. But it was a way of saying, Somebody important is coming. Something big is about to happen. Hear ye, hear ye. Prepare the way for the Lord's coming. And in Luke, as in all the Gospels, John the Baptist is courier for the king. He arrives before the king. In uh, verse 2 of chapter 3, it says, uh, At this time, a message from God came to John, son of Zechariah, who was living in the wilderness. Now, if you know about John the Baptist, you know this is, this is a wild person. <laughs> and uh, he's not wild because he's living in the wilderness. The wilderness is the place that you would go uh, to, to be incredibly spiritual. The wilderness is the place that you go to find God, to seek him out. Does that make sense? So deeply devoted people would move into the wilderness. And then go on to verse 3, it says, And John went from, uh, he, he goes in the wilderness, and, and sorry, it says that he actually receives this word from the Lord, just like the prophets of old. He receives this word from the Lord to go and, and prepare the way to announce the coming of the king. And in verse 3, John went from place to place on both sides of the Jordan River. Uh, the, that one side of the Jordan River is the Samaritan side preaching that people should be baptized to show that they've repented for their sins and turn to God to be forgiven. Now in verse 15 of this same chapter, if we jump forward just a little bit, it says that everyone was expecting the Messiah uh, to come soon. Uh, here in a few months, we'll celebrate the season of Advent, the church season, that, that season of expectation. That's what he says. Everyone was adventing the Messiah to come soon, expecting the Messiah to come soon. And they were eager to know if, if John was actually the guy. Uh, wait, wait, wait. John, are, you the, are you the guy? And John says, no, 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 no. I'm the forerunner. I'm the one that comes before him. And it says in verse 16 that John answers their questions by saying, I baptize with water, but someone is 
What are those next two words? Someone is coming soon who is greater than I am. So much greater, I'm not even worthy to be a slave and untie the straps of his sandals. He will baptize you with, whole, with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So keep going. He is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire. All right, so John is totally living up to his prophetic role. Like, we're, ta- we're already talking about fire, right? <laughs> it's already happening. And you have the whole picture of the winnowing fork. So they would bring the wheat in a, in a giant big pile, and, and they need to separate the wheat together. And so they had this special fork. And what you would do is you would scoop up a big hunk of, uh, of wheat, and you'd throw it in the air. And, and, and the grain of wheat, the, is that gra- grain of wheat? Yeah, whatever the part you want would fall down here and the chaff would catch in the breeze and blow away. And there would be a piece that you really wanted and valued and there would be other that was really useless. It's not, even, uh, it's not even worth burning, frankly. It's too much effort. What he says is, even when he talks about fire, it's, it's, it's purification. He says, there's one who's coming Man, I, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. I mean, I, I can offer you a baptism of water, but he's going to offer you so much more. He's going to invite you to so much more. There is going to be this time of, of separation. In verse 7, it says, Crowds came to John for baptism, and he said, You brood of snakes, who warned you to flee God's coming wrath? And then in verse 8, really of chapter 3, this is the place where we want to land. In verse 8, John says, Prove by the way you live that you've repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, We're safe, for we're descendants of Abraham. Who are the descendants of Abraham? Jews. That's right. And there was this kind of idea that, well, you know, it was kind of like, I don't know, punching your ticket, like, well, I'm a Jewish, so I'm good. I can do whatever I want. Um, you see Christians kind of behave this way sometimes, right? You know what I'm saying? Uh, sometimes we use that, that language of once saved, always saved. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm talking about? Well, psh, I was baptized as a kid, so I'm good, right? Safe. And so how I live really doesn't matter because I'm safe. And so this, this is not a new idea. The, Jewish, the Jews of the day, the sons and daughters of Abraham, had this same impression of, well, if I did this one thing, then everything is fine. But now here we have this wild man, hairy and eating bugs and honey, showing up, and he tells me, maybe you're not so safe. Because the measure is not just uh, your lineage, but your life, right? Isn't that what he says at the very beginning? He says, maybe you, were, maybe you were born into this family of God, but I say, prove by the way you live that you've repented of your sins and turned to God. John says, life, not lineage, is the measure. And then they have this awesome question, this awesome sequence of questions that, that comes in verses 10 through, uh, 10 through about verse 14. Go ahead and put those up there. 
And so John says, you know, what really counts is your life. And so the people say, okay, what should we do? And what they're really asking is, if life is what matters, if the measure is, is life, then, then when they say, what should we do, they're really saying, how should we live? How do we show people that, that we've really repented? You guys know that repentance, if you're a skateboarder, you know what repentance is because in skateboarding, there's this move called a 180. I know we've talked about this before, but a 180 on a skateboard is if you're riding your skateboard and you're going this direction, a 180 is when you pull the front wheels up and you turn and now you're going in the complete opposite direction. John says, prove by the way you live, prove by the 180 that you've made. Not just that you came here and you asked for oral repentance and accepted Christ and kept going, but true repentance will be evident in your life. See how that works? And so when the people say, how should we live? And look what John says in verse 11. He says, well, it's simple, really. If you have two shirts, give one to the poor. And if you have food, share it with those who are hungry. See, he already is uh, advocating a whole different kind of economy. Social, social generosity, kind of, a, kind of a community awareness. You know, and, and kind of conversely, you know, the guaranteed way to DQ yourself from, from God's kingdom is, is, is to be content with, with your, your much, to be content with your overflow while others have little. Jesus would say later, love your neighbor. Should be cautious of being content with your abundance while others have little. In verse 12, he goes on. In the theme of the Catholic gospel, the gospel for everyone, not just those who are perfect, not just who those who are the great churchgoers, um, but in the theme of this is for everyone we already see corrupt tax collectors. I think that's an oxymoron. Um, at least it would have been for them. You know, tax collectors were, were these guys that uh, they, they had kind of agreed upon amount that they had to pay uh, uh, the rulers in that area. Right now, they're under, uh, right now they're under Roman rule. During this time, they were under Roman rule. And so a tax collector was actually a Jewish person that made a deal with the devil, all right, for X, X amount, and then could collect whatever they wanted. As long as they paid X amount to the Roman authorities, which no one knew, they could collect as much as they wanted with zero accountability. And so what happened? Tax collectors were, weren't your best friend. Yeah, that's right. Um, but tax collectors are here listening to John the Baptist. And tax collectors said, well, what should we do? Look what he tells them. How should we live? 
And John says, well, you know, it's really pretty simple. Collect no more taxes than the government requires. And then soldiers come. Go ahead to this next one. Soldiers say, well, what should we do? And John replied, don't extort money or, or make false accusations and be content with your pay. It's interesting that in facing this question of what should we do, all related to someone's coming and we need to repair the way, John doesn't order people to, to leave their jobs, right? He doesn't say, well, you shouldn't be a tax collector anymore. Or it doesn't say you shouldn't be a soldier anymore. And instead, he, he kind of says, you know, don't, don't leave your jobs, but perform your work with, with integrity. Be good at what you do. His, his impression is that, that nowhere can you serve God better than at your daily work. So your service of God doesn't happen in, in some other place and some other time on Sunday mornings when you show up. He says, you're, how are you improved by the way you live? Oh, that, that happens every day in your daily work. I want to go ahead and invite the, the worship team back up here. I want to share a few, few closing thoughts with you. Uh, there was a great preacher named... Uh, uh, Thomas Chalmers, and um, after, uh, after one of his, his sermons, after one of his, his services, after, after one of his teachings, uh, I'm sure it's far better than mine, um, he was standing outside and, and shaking hands, and a person came to Thomas and said, oh, that teaching, congratulations, that was an awesome teaching, that, that was, whew, man, you just... You knocked that one out of the park. Congratulations. And Thomas, in, in his great wisdom, said, yes, and thank you. But then he asked the question, but what did it do? That's the kind of uh, teacher John the Baptist is. That's the kind of teacher Luke is. It's clear that John the Baptist preached for action and produced it. He, he didn't deal in kind of, kind of theological uh, subtleties. But John the Baptist deals in life, right? His teaching was about life. It was about our every day, how we live. And so a couple of questions, just as we wrapped up, is, uh, is one I guess my first question is, do you have any sense that someone is coming? It says in John chapter 3 that the people were expecting the Messiah to come soon. Do you feel it? Do you have any sense that the king is coming. And if we don't, what, what is that? But if we did, how would that change things? If you and I knew 
the king was coming. We wouldn't, we wouldn't be out mending roads, fixing potholes. But, but if we knew the king was coming, we would be preparing the way, right? And, and, and like I said, not, not fixing roads, but, but we would prepare the way by preparing our hearts and our lives. We would prepare the way of the Lord by making our lives fit for a king. See how that works? And so our question becomes the, the same question that the tax collectors ask and the, and the soldiers asked. That the, that the sinners asked, that, that the people asked, our question becomes their question. And the question is, what should we do? If the king is coming, and we're called to prepare the way for the king, what should we do? How should we live? That's what John says in verse 8. Prove by the way you live. Your life, not your lineage, is the measure. And so he says, first and foremost, it's time for you to do a skateboard move. It's time for a 180. Um, I love that, that John includes this. Uh, I love that our Lord God is a God of grace, is a God of mercy, is a God of forgiveness, but he's also a God of repentance. And we're really good at, at latching on to grace and latching on to forgiveness and latching on to mercy, which is freely extended, but it has always come with the expectation of repentance. So if you're saying, oh, I'm so sorry, God, I'm so sorry, I give my life to you and nothing changes, you still keep going in that same direction, then something's missing, right? Some of the most painful moments in my life is when people have, have hurt me or injured me and they said, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'll never do that again, and then what happens? Like life matters, right? <laughs> like behavior matters, and it matters to God too. That we actually repent, that we actually, like, like, like the measure isn't just our, our agreement with Jesus. The measure is our alignment, willing to, to actually change, and that's seen in how we live. And so John the Baptist said, repent and be baptized. Baptism is what we practice here at this church. Baptism actually means immersion. To go under the water, and it's a physical, it's a, it's physical demonstration. It's, it's a sign to everyone. What I love is when one person is baptized in our church, everyone that's been baptized, we're baptized again, right? Do you get that, do you get that feeling? Like we're reminded of our own like moment. We're reminded of our own turn. We're reminded again to live our lives in preparation of the king's coming. So repent and be baptized. Then to consider what you have. 
I don't want to be, I don't, I don't want you to be content with your overflow when others have so little. To, to practice loving your neighbor in tangible, real ways. And, and then to whatever your daily work is, Scripture says, work as if for who? You got a boss, and, and he's, he's not a human boss. <laughs> so it doesn't matter what you do every day, work as if for the Lord. So uh, I invite you this morning, all of us together, <laughs> as we open the Catholic gospel, uh, the universal gospel. It's just for you. It doesn't matter who you are or where you've come from. I love that in this room we come from all different tribes and faiths and religions and backgrounds. We come uh, carrying a whole uh, a variety of sins. And this morning the invitation is come. Prepare the way. Repent of your sins. Be baptized. Love your neighbor. And work as if for the Lord. Because your life matters. And how you live it matters. This isn't just talk. This isn't just something it, that, that happens it, uh, ideologically. But your life Today, when you leave this place, when you walk out of this place, the thoughts you have when, when somebody cuts you off in traffic, your life matters. So let us together prepare the way of the Lord. Can I get an amen? Amen. We're going to enter into a time of communion together. It's part of our, uh, it's part of our tradition. It's part of our heartbeat. It's something we love. So around the room, we have communion tables set up. And as you uh, spend time reflecting on God's word, maybe, maybe spend some time in, in chapter three, maybe you need to wrap your arms around some people and hug them. Or maybe it's, it's time for you to repent. There's a sin. There's, a, there's something that you've been holding on to for too long. Uh, uh, one way of thinking of sin is that any, anything that separates you from God. Sin is anything that creates distance between you and God. So maybe you can ask yourself that question in this time as you, uh, as you take this cup and as you, as you take this, this bread, which represents what, what Christ did for us. Think, man, is there, is there anything in my life that's separating me from you? How can I prepare the way? Do I even have a sense that, that, that this isn't it, that there is a day coming soon? Where the king will be here. So I invite you to enjoy this time of communion together. Uh, really, communion means, you know, together. So if you need your own quiet space or you don't like people, that's fine. Have your little quiet time. That's fine. But I also invite you to share this with others. Uh, the way we live, the kind of life uh, that, that John is advocating, that Luke is advocating, uh, I don't think you'll ever be able to live it by yourself. I think it takes a community. I think it takes a takes a, a faith family that's going to help you make this turn and be consistent and walk that path together. So I, I want you to find that even, even now here in this space. I'm going to move to the back if, uh, uh, and I know some of our shepherds will be there too. Man, maybe today's your day to be, to be baptized and, and you're thinking, I don't have the clothes. I didn't, I didn't bring a swimsuit. We got you covered. We got everything you need. If you're ready to make that confession that Jesus is Lord of your life, then man, we're here to receive it and help you live 
that kind of life. Let's pray together. Father God, I love you so much. I thank you for your son, Jesus. Um, God, you've never failed and you won't start now. Help the words of, of John's teaching as presented through Luke. Help them to reverberate in our brains and our life today. Don't, don't give us a false, don't, don't let us live in this kind of false sense of security like, like somehow we claimed you, but then, then nothing in our life is, is reflective of that choice. So Father God, penetrate us deeper to, to the point of really looking at, at our actions, really looking at our choices, really looking at our values. Father God, are we preparing the way? We know that your son died on a cross for our sins and three days later he rose again and his promise was that not only that he would always be with us but that one day he would come back. So God, as we take this cup and as we, as we take this bread, let us remember this thing isn't over yet. And while we are here, we have a life job to do. So let us repent, let us be baptized, let us love our neighbors, and let us, whatever the work we have in front of us, Father God, let us do it as if it's for you. We love you, Father, and in your son Jesus' name, everyone together says...